Jeff. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a beautiful day here in Boulder, and it's a Friday, so, uh-huh. you know, what could be wrong? Yeah, we got rain for the first time, which is totally great because we've been in a major drought for the last no, I know. few years. You're going to get a good rain, right? Yeah, so the good news is we had a long rain last night. The bad news is I woke up and found three leaks in my house. That <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't yeah. know about because, you know, I guess they developed over the last 18 months and there wasn't enough water to, um, so, you know, it's a dialectic of progress. <laughs> Isn't that something? It yeah. certainly is. So today on the Shrink and the Pundit, we wanted to talk about a topic that's really so central to so many of our lives, most of us, as you point out in your book, a clueless to dialed in, and that is marriage, love and marriage. In your book, you spent a lot of time on this, and I'm assuming that as a psychotherapist for all these years, you've spent a lot of time on this. And I, I actually would start with just a question I'm interested in, and that is, what percentage of people would you say come to you with some problem in terms of their marriage or relationship? Probably 90%. Yeah. Um, it's just pretty uh, central, and it's such an area that's fraught with pain and trouble and difficulty, as you point out in your book. So I guess we just start there, Keith. What are you thinking about marriage these days? Is it changing? Where where do you see it going? You know, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about marriage. I think it's, uh, it's an institution that will deliver uh, more and more love and stability uh, to the world and to people in general. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, the rising wave of consciousness is not an individual wave. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's individual and collaborative. And part of that is human beings in relationship and human beings are, are genetically programmed for marriage. We're, we're actually, if we were, it was just the genes talking, we'd have serial marriages um, lasting on average four or five years, and we'd cheat on each other whenever we had a chance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that's the gen, genetic program we're trying to work with here, huh? Yeah, so we're working with that. <laughs> Jesus, so, no, wonder, no wonder it's so painful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so then you add consciousness on top of that, and you get the same uh, uh, effects that you have when you add consciousness on top of tying two sticks together. You know, you get a jet airplane. So you add consciousness <laughs> on top of those drives, you get those kinds of sophisticated relationships. And, you know, yeah. most people get married. 90% of people get married. People who divorce, 80% of men and 70% of women remarry. So it's, it's something that we're drawn to do. We're drawn to pair bond like 3% of other mammals, and, and that's it. And, and so we have to work with that. And within the context of that, we have to work with our lust drive, which is an immediate drive. We have to work with romantic infatuation, which is a temporary madness. Uh, and then we have to work with intimate bonding and attachment. And yeah. all three of those drives exist in us autonomously, uh, along with other drives. For instance, the drive to dominance. Um, that has been under one, one great thing about integral is that whenever you're looking at one aspect of the world you always know that there's other perspectives that inform that 
And that's how, if you're a sociologist, for instance, it's easy to get lost in your sociology. Um, I read a book on modern marriage. I think Cheroff, I think, was the guy's name, sociologist. And he really got lost in the socioeconomics of marriage um, mm-hmm. and, and was fascinated by it, but, but really got away from the neurobiology and the developmental um, evolutionary psychology of it. Um, you know, for instance, the income gap has a profound effect on marriage. Um, which also has a profound effect on the experiences of children in, in single-parent families. Um, You're talking about if two partners have uh, come from different socioeconomic backgrounds? Or well, that, that actually, that, that, that used to happen more. It happens less now. You know, one thing about the income disparity uh, in the United States is that people are, are marrying less. Used to used to be there was more crossover um, between um, middle class, lower class, less educated, and more ed- educated. Mostly, I think, because there weren't as many women in the workforce. Now yeah. that there are as many women in the workforce, people are more likely to choose somebody at the same um, socioeconomic level and the same educational level. And so college-educated people are more likely to marry and less likely to get divorced, for instance. Um, high school-educated people less likely to marry, um, more likely to get divorced when they do marry, and, and more likely to have... Um, uh, single parent families, and so you know that those have that has consequences on on the society in general and on specific relationships. Um, but he's a sociologist, and so at the very end of his book, he would the only recommendation that he could make, which I thought was fascinating, which was the same recommendation that David Data made once in a lecture when someone says, "Well, what's one thing you can do to make sex better?" And the sociologist said the same thing about marriage. He said. Slow it down. <laughs> slow everything <laughs> down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so slowing the whole courtship, showing, slowing the whole movement towards marriage and having mm-hmm. longer pre-marriage courtships, I guess, right? Yeah, and more, and more of an understanding that you need to um, be able to function with each other in different states of consciousness and through different structures of consciousness and that in a marriage, and this is really what Integral offers, this kind of a unique offering to Integral. It's very much like what Ken's talking about with fourth wave Buddhism, actually. Is that we can, if we can self-reflect, and you know, as you and I have talked about many times, self-observation is the core to almost everything. But we can self-reflect and see states of consciousness pretty well as we self-reflect. We have a lot of difficulty perceiving structures of consciousness. Yeah. And, you know, we in, the, in Integral tend to think of structures of consciousness in terms of the spiral, you know, red, blue, orange, um, green, and so on, and teal. But there's lots and lots of structures of consciousness, and there's lots and lots of stage um, progressions in structures of consciousness. Um, and there's individual structures of consciousness, and there's collective structures of consciousness. In other words, there's structures of consciousness that only exist when certain people are together in, in certain life circumstances. And then those structures of consciousness come into being intersubjectively. And this happens in marriage. And sometimes they're great structures of consciousness. You see each other and all of a sudden you're feeling a sense of warmth and love and a desire to connect. And sometimes they're destructive structures of consciousness. You see each other and there's a reflective sense of irritability or right. uh, a desire to attack. You know, p- people come in often over the years and say, we're like brother and sister. And meaning, you know, we're kind of neutral and we, we get along pretty well. 
But when they, when they say that, I always think about the actual data about brothers and sisters. Between the ages of three and seven, siblings fight 3.5 times every hour. <laughs> we have hardwired neuro, neurological networks, neural, neural networks in our brains, that if we relate to somebody like a sibling, we have hardwired networks that normalize fighting 3.5 times per hour. And sometimes couples come in and they'll have, unconsciously have activated those networks with each other and then strengthen them, not realizing when they get together they create these structures of consciousness through which they relate to each other in a particular way, creating states, um, often defensive states, um, that create suffering. And since the structures of consciousness tend to not be visible, we're kind of wandering around in the dark being influenced by, by structures that we're not aware of in the states that we're often not aware of that are, are co-created with other people. And it makes marriage and relationship and love affairs kind of a crapshoot. Integral well, understanding. Yeah. The idea that you would uh, be accessing these um, structures of consciousness, and not only that, but just structures of, of brain, uh, yeah. neural networks that are from childhood and relating to siblings and bring that into yeah. the marriage. Yeah. yeah I've always no I noticed in the, when I was a long time ago, but around 1980, I'd been working with couples several years, and I concluded that when the levels of intimacy recapitulate in a couple, recapitulated the levels of intimacy in the family, that's when the primary defenses would come out. And later on, when I encountered Integral, I began to have an understanding of what was going on there. And then when I began to look at the neurobiology of attachment, I began to have even a deeper understanding of that, which is it's, it's, it's really useful for couples because, you know, American culture tends to aggrandize romantic love, be a little bit scared of, of lust, and be kind of clueless about intimate bonding. Uh, yeah. Uh, anybody who works with people will, will have talked to somebody who said, well, I just fell out of love. You know, I'm, I love him, but I'm not in love with him. And so what they have is they have a culturally defined structure in them that says love is romantic infatuation, real love with, with a couple. And if I'm not feeling romantic infatuation, there's something profoundly wrong with this relationship, and I should trade it in on another one. Right. And so what that person is destined to do is be a serial monogamist until they can actually change the structure that they've created, co-created with culture and with family, um, that basically puts them in a position where they really can't work in, a, in an intimately bonded relationship on you know, deeper eroticism, for instance, because they feel like the relationship is suspect because they're not, quote, in love anymore. And, and you're saying that this romantic infatuation ends at any rate. Is this the one you were talking about as a temporary insanity? Yeah, temporary yeah. insanity. There's long-term couples where they've put them in the functional MRI, and the areas in the uh, ventral tegmental area and the caudate nucleus will light up like they do within love couples. And a lot of other relational circuits will light up also. And so it is possible... To, to have those in-love feelings, though with long-term couples, they tend to have it episodically. Rather, and and it's, it's often a function of consciousness. You know, they're actually working at it. One thing about, about Ken that people don't, I think, appreciate is that um, Ken really is more of a scientist than most scientists are. Mm. And, you, you know, 
Ken is, is always, always interested in cross-validating a position with, da with data from all four quadrants. And when you do that, and, and he's kind of like Michael Murphy that way. Michael Murphy talks about synoptic empiricism. Synoptic empiricism, according to Michael Murphy, is the more people who independently discover something, the more likely that thing is to be objectively tr you know, true, you know, like uh, upper right quadrant true. Right. And so a lot of people have studied long-term happy couples from a variety of different directions. And, and so they found that there's characteristics that are in common with long-term happy couples. And these characteristics are actually characteristics that you can practice at every stage of a relationship. But they have different importance and different challenges at each progressive stage. Because when you get married, you're not just signing up for one marriage. You're signing up for a number of marriages because this marriage is going to change. It's going to change um, from romantic infatuation to intimate bonding. It's going to change towards living together. It'll change from the transition into childhood. It'll change through family. It'll change through aging bodies, uh, middle age, changed endocrine systems. Each one of those changes is associated with new structures of consciousness around how you hold yourself in the marriage and how you hold your partner. And th that, those marriages need to be, it, to be happy, need to be successfully reorganized uh, by both people, which is what makes marriage so challenging. Can't just be one person doing it. It's got to be both wow. people doing it. No, that's just really profound and just so true. I, when I think of my own relationships, and I've had several, long-term relationships that really didn't turn into lifetime marriages. And even in five, ten years, the relationships are radically different. You really require different ways of relating. And as, as you say, you're signing up for, for many different marriages. In your relationships, if you're going to say there's three characteristics uh, that there's three qualities that are, are aspects that really need to be attended to to keep a relationship happy. What would those three things be? What would you say with your experience? Yeah. Well, I was always faithful, and I was always in faithful relationships, so I think that's key. And I, I just mm -hmm. can't imagine being in a relationship where that wasn't happening. So that's one. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The other one is to be curious about my partner, and mm -hmm. to not think I know who he is and to be willing to be surprised and to just sort of have an orientation that I want to continue to know him better. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe at the same time that I want to be known better. I want to reveal more and more of myself so that that's an ongoing process. So maybe mm -hmm. I just stop there and see how I'm doing. Well, see, what you're intuitively hitting on are the characteristics that the researchers tend to come to. There is this guy, Nate Bagley, who decided to drop everything, take his life savings, and travel around the country interviewing long-term happy couples to see what they had in common. Mm -hmm. And so he found that there were four characteristics that they had in common. Now, one of them was implied in what you said that in these relationships, you had two people who loved themselves um, with the same kind of dedication that they loved their partner. They were dedicated to self-care. And it makes sense. You can't have one person abandoned to self-destruction, addiction, whatever, 
and expect to have a relationship that's fulfilling for both people. Right. The second thing that he found was that sense of fidelity. That one, there was a commitment. When things get tough, we're going to help each other through it. And then related to that was trust. It's very interesting in relationships. If you're working with a couple where there's never been a major betrayal, major betrayal doesn't exist in their shared universe. And, and they'll take it for granted. It's so fascinating to me. Neither person has ever went out and spent $20,000 and never told the other person about it or cheated or, any, or those kinds of things. Major lie. Okay, they've never had that. And so they just exist in this, this kind of world where betrayal just doesn't exist. Now, when betrayal comes into that world, the, the couple can heal from that. In fact, 70% of couples where there's a, a infidelity, they do resolve it. But from then on, betrayal now exists in their shared universe. And it's a different universe. You know, the, they never take it for granted again. Ten, 10, 15 years later, she'll say, yeah, but then you cheated on me. You had that secret affair for six months. Or he'll say the same, or he'll say, yeah, you ran up that credit card bill for $20,000 and, and I only found out about it when I got the bill collector. Right. And so that trust and the, the commitment and trust Really a big deal. And then the fourth thing that he found was intentionality. That couples really remembered every day to do something to love each other. They didn't take it for granted. Um, it, it reminds me of, you know Milton Erickson? You ever heard of Milton Erickson, the famous sure. hypnotherapist? Well, uh, Bill Hanlon once walked into Milton uh, Erickson's office. Milton Erickson picked up a rock and threw it at him. You know, Hanlon, horrified, you know, put this, it was a big rock, put up his hands, you know, and as soon as the, the rock hit him, it hit his hands, he realized it was made of foam, but painted to look exactly like a rock. <laughs> and Milton, Eric, Milton Erickson looked at him and he said, never take anything for granted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so happy couples don't take anything for granted. So Nate Bagley went and did this individual thing, well, well, John Godman has done longitudinal studies with couples over many years and basically discovered the same things. You know, for instance, couples that don't downregulate uh, anger, you know, where they have escalating anger, escalating hostility. Those couples right. divorce on average at, within six years after being married. And couples that don't upregulate positive, they don't have that intentionality to share pleasure with each other. They tend to divorce on average 16 years after marriage. The downregulating, escalating hostility, and upregulating positives seem to be necessary for long-term committed relationships. Now, how do you apply that going through different stages of marriage, different, the different marriages that you have? Well, there's lots of different ways. But from an integral psychotherapy standpoint, because this stuff to me is very interesting both as a therapist and as just information for regular people. As a therapist, I can, I can see the structures of consciousness in people and the states of consciousness that come out of it because I'm looking at it from the outside. And part of my job is to have them kind of understand that a lot of their structures of consciousness, particularly the shadow stuff, is organized to normalize violence to themselves and to other people. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. the more accustomed we are to someone, the more relaxed we are with someone, the more we allow ourselves impulses to violence with that person. And that especially happens in relationships. 
And so nonviolence needs to become much more conscious usually. Not only that, but like in friendships, we don't maintain friendships where we're not really having a good time most of the, you know, most of the time. If we're not having right. fun with a friend, we'll just gradually drift away. Not so with married couples. Married couples can coexist and not have much fun for each, with each other for years, which is one of the reasons if you live next door to a friend, you're 35% more likely to be happy. But if you're married, you're only 7% more likely to be happy. Because, <laughs> yeah. Well, I lo- you know, I just love just the basic to just bring into consciousness that we want to down-level our negative and hostile behaviors mm-hmm. and beliefs and up-level what's positive. And yeah. to, to just do that as a practice, it's, just, it's, it's almost too simple. But uh-huh. I could see just the power of it and to remember to do it as a practice, to do it every single day, as you're pointing out, can lead to this long-term marriage where it's not like brother and sister, there are still romantic feelings. It sounds really delicious. And I think, Keith, you and Becky are an example of that kind of marriage, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think that you would agree with that. And it, there's a lot of intentionality in that in our programming. There was a lot of programming in our development for monogamy, but also for conflict. More passive from her, her family, more active from my family. And so those structures became visible to us, reflected in our partner. You know, yeah. you often will, you can only see your own structure of consciousness reflected in how you're impacting the world. And in a relationship, right. it's how you're impacting your partner. And this is the, you know, kind of the brutal truth about marriage, is that it really requires both people working on their own structures and on the shared structures that are co-created in the relationship it really requires two people doing that work on an ongoing basis um, to have a relationship be defined by them as, as high intimacy and high satisfaction. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's, a lot of it, it involves development in that we need different skills as we go through these different life stages. For instance, women are programmed in romantic infatuation to be, to be very sexual with their partner. They find him desirable. Um, right. Because... There's those dopamine bursts, and both of them have low serotonin and high dopamine. They're obsessed with each other. They want to touch each other. They want to know each other and so on. You go into intimate bonding, and that system is not active. The male sexual system, which is I see her, I want her, is still active. The woman's system of desire leading to arousal gets distracted, particularly in childbirth. And so if a woman doesn't recognize that her structure of consciousness has changed and she needs some intentionality, she'll lose her sense of eroticism with her partner. And this happens especially in the first year after birth. Uh, Gottman did a, uh, and the culture doesn't even want to look at that. John Gottman did a study on the transition into parenthood. And so his was the 17th study that he found on the transition to parenthood. And his study, the 17th study, was the only study that asked people how their sex life was after the baby. The only one. The other 16 studies, yeah, they didn't even ask. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yeah. And what he found is that, well, 30% of the people were doing better, and 70% were doing worse. 70% had higher conflict, more conflict about um, eroticism and sex, more anger at each other you know, more escalating conflict, 70% of them were doing worse. 30% were doing better. 
And so what characterized the ones who were doing better? I mean, that's how Gottman likes to do his stuff, and that's a really great way of, of looking at things. What they'd done is they'd, they'd brought that element of intentionality into their relationship. And so they had redefined eroticism to have a, a more of a continuum with affection and sensuality and generosity and variations. The women weren't feeling as sexually urgent because they were breastfeeding, because they were in love with their babies. But they realized as they, began, as they came back from the birth that they needed to have a sensual erotic relationship with their partner and work with them. They worked at de-escalating conflict and, and, and putting energy into upregulating a positive stuff. And uh, they actually turned towards each other. When someone wants something, they, they give a nonverbal signal, I want attention, I want some kind of validation. And the other person, if they turn towards them frequently, generally people will have high satisfaction and high intimacy. If you put out a bid for uh, attention and someone turns away or doesn't notice it, you generally will have less satisfaction and, and less intimacy and more conflict. And so he, John Gottman was, said, well, this sounds like a cultural problem. And so he took a whole bunch of people and he, he, he just spent a weekend teaching them the stuff that I just said, followed up on them, and he completely reversed the t- statistics. That three years later, 70% were saying we're doing better, and 30% said they were doing worse. One weekend of education made that much of a difference. Yeah. Now, that's a cultural pathology, Jeff. That's our culture, not well, teaching it's just, people stuff. Uh, totally. I mean, as I'm sitting here listening to you just throughout this call, I'm thinking, and what institution are we less prepared for than right. this institution of marriage? Where nobody really, I mean, we just sort of expect that we're going to figure it out. Some of these just basic principles aren't really taught. So yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that with you, Keith, in your therapy, that after working with a couple, you, I mean, do you, have you done any even informal studies, or do you have any sense of, of how couples do after therapy with you? Yeah, there's a lot of people that I've followed over you know, decades, actually. And my experience mirrors Nate Bagley's experience and John Gottman's research. The people that are willing, and remember, we talked about this a year ago, the people that are willing to receive influence and grow to create more love, if there's two people that are willing to do that, they do well. Right. If one of the people is not, generally it turns into long-term marital suffering or divorce, separation divorce. Right. Uh, and that's important because you know, people come in and they go, we want to solve issues. Well, research basically shows that 69% of marital problems are perpetual problems. They never get solved. They just keep coming up again and again. 60%. And so, 69%. Wow. Two-thirds. And so mm-hmm. that means that what we've got to do is get good at managing the problems and making slow progress. And we're probably going to be making slow progress on most of these problems throughout the life of the relationship. You know, if money's an issue, we're going to keep, you know, money's going to keep coming up. We're going to keep having to get better at it, or in-laws, or children, or parenting, or sex, or communication. Uh, and so, so my experience is the people that are willing to receive influence and keep making adjustments towards love, um, generally do well. Now, some people have a lot more going against them, and some people have a lot more going for them. And, and so statistically, the people that have more going for them, you know, they're, they're by nature uh, less prone, for instance, to addiction, 
or to depression or anxiety or even hostility. You know, guys with a lot of testosterone, um, they tend to be more aggressive and they tend to marry less frequently and they're more abusive in marriage and they tend to divorce more. And so those guys have to work harder to have a good marriage. Or say you have a personality disorder. You just happen to be born emotionally reactive and have dismissive parents or neglectful parents. Well, then you have to actually make significant progress on your personality disorder, um, particularly in terms of calming yourself down when you go into distorted aroused states, or you're going to um, end up sabotaging your marriage. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of the brutal physics, I call it, of, of relationship. The more problems you have, the more difficult it is to work on them and the more important it is to work on them. I'd say, you know, the statistics say that about 50% of people divorce. I'd say about half of the people left, maybe 20 to 25% of, of relationships, people would describe themselves as, as um, you know, hap- satisfied, you know, in, in right. most of the major dimensions. And, uh, and, you know, and that shifts, that, that varies. But I think that that's possible. The, 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 that's a significant number of people, but it's not most of the people. And it just right. reflects how challenging. And remember, modern marriage is, is the most challenging and demanding and conditional love that's ever existed. The modern marriage where people have equal power has never existed before in the history of the, the world. And right. it, it, it's just tremendously demanding. We could see the difference between marriage between, uh, I think, of my parents' marriage and the marriages yeah. of my friends, uh, and, you know, I'm a boomer, and then the marriages of my friends' kids. They're all three very different. Yeah, yeah. In just and my lifetime. It, right. This, this is back, this, we, we live in interesting times. And yeah, there's no principles kidding. that continue through this. And, you know, there's, there, there were strengths and, and weaknesses of, of the forms that arose during all those eras. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens today is that this is a very child-centric culture. And so, so much emphasis is put on, on raising children that it's, it's, and, and it's a work-centric culture. You know, it's, it's yeah. kind of moral to work really hard and it's moral to put a lot of energy in your kids. Well, what tends to get lost is self-care and care of the love in the, in the relationship. And so the marital love affair, the marital friendship, suffers. And couples feel like that's virtuous because they're taking care of the kids and they're doing their job at work. Not realizing that over time, that leaves them vulnerable to lust, romantic infatuation, distracting attractions, and dissatisfaction, uh, separation, chronic suffering. It, 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 it kind of one of the a lot of a lot of therapists because couples are so hard. A lot of therapists just give up on it. You know, I've I've yeah. I've been finding a lot of therapists. I don't do couples. I go, well, why not? It's just too much trouble, Gates. <laughs> well, I and and they're they're right. Couples are, are more difficult than individuals. But I like doing couples because to me, you know, having there's such there's such a potential for more love in a couple that that is dedicated to doing right. And yet it somehow felt like it was moral to not enjoy each other, you know, as friends and as playmates and as lovers. Well, that's and stuff. so funny. It's funny that you point that out because it's true. And I'm just realizing as you, as you do point it out that the focus is on work, the focus is on kids, and it almost feels sort of indulgent to focus yeah. on self and, and on the intimate relationship itself. That's got to flip, and, and from what I'm hearing from you, of course, 
uh, in good marriages that people do pay attention to those things and, and, and a good bit of attention to those things. Yeah, to the extent that, that both people need it. You know, yeah. uh, there, there's a, each marriage kind of has a carrying capacity for how much emotion it can handle, how much processing it can handle, and how much it needs. For instance, you can have two people that are emotionally dismissing. You kind of suck it up and carry on. You don't want to pay a lot of attention to emotion. Those two people who married can have high intimacy and high satisfaction as long as whenever one of them wants something, the other one says, sure. Okay? Yeah. Those couples don't, have, don't end up in, in treatment very often unless there's some catastrophe that requires them to put a lot of focus on emotional processing. And then if one of them can't do it, then they, they start falling to pieces and they'll end up in a therapist's office. But until that happens, you know, ask them, how are you doing? We're doing great. And so there's a lot of individual variation because consciousness has such variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the other thing is that a lot of things, times marriage counselors, I think, lose sight of this. You know, relatively simple problems often have way complex structures of consciousness that drive them. And so it's, hmm. it's, it's often quite difficult to change apparently easy things. You know, a couple comes in and they go, well, um, we, don't, we, know, we only have sex once every three months. And so you think, well, fuck, you know, like, why don't you just have sex twice a week? You know what? It takes 45 minutes. It's probably the most time-efficient and energy-efficient way of improving your relationship imaginable. But it's not that simple. They each have structures of consciousness. Or, you know, we, we have a big fight every three weeks and we kind of crabby to each other, you know, kind of reflexively mean to each other. You think, well, it's, that's so simple. Just be nice to each other. You know, this guy, Nate Bagley, asked these long-term couples about conflict. And, and they all basically said the same thing. They said, one, we don't fight to win. We fight to resolve the, the current issue. Two, we focus on understanding each other. And three, we really try to be nice. <laughs> You know, to just having this standard of, okay, even if we're mad, let's be nice to each other, apparently has a huge impact on your level of trust, your level of commitment <laughs> in the relationship. Again, Keith, this is almost too simple, this stuff. Uh-huh. Be nice. And the, but, you know, if I'm not nice to you, there's a structure of consciousness in me through which I have impulses. I go enter states where I want to get relief by being crabby or mean for, to you, you know, letting that out, and where I have reflexive belief systems that justify that. I can't see those structures of consciousness, and I can yeah. barely see those states when they're pointed out. And, yeah. you know, how do we get to changing those structures of consciousness? Well, we get people aware of their states and reaching for more beneficial states, and then gradually as they approach teal, because, you know, you've got to be close to teal to be able to observe states of structures of consciousness inside you. As people approach teal, they can have more and more self-awareness that I've worked through different worldviews in my marriage, and I'm going to work through others, and I have the intent to have an organizing principle to get back to love with you, and you have that intent with me. Now we're getting back to that trust and commitment. You know, that's one of the reasons why the higher-functioning people are a lot more fun to work with. Yeah. Integrally informed people are a lot of fun to work with just because I can speak that kind of language. Uh, well, I, I imagine we're more fun to be married to, too, right? I, you know, I think so. <laughs> I, I swear that, that in, the, in the happy long-term couples that I've worked with, they have diminished fear of death. They have a felt appreciation for a lot of points of view. 
They're interested in multiple perspectives. In other words, they, 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 within the context of their relationship, they'll have an integral consciousness. Even if right. they might be blue with other, in other environments, in that relationship, if they're both happy with each other, they'll be functioning at a teal altitude at their, at their interpersonal yeah. level of development. That's very sweet. That's a very a kind of an inspiring insight, Keith, that you know, a good marriage itself becomes a container for yeah. the updraft of development in both of the partners. I think that just is self-evidently true, but again, uh, almost too simple to notice. Well, if you have a sense that the best way to, to accelerate, one of the best ways. See, we know that meditation accelerates the development of structures of consciousness, the evolution of structures of consciousness. We know that. Yes. We know that mindful self-observation accelerates development and gives us response flexibility, gives us a chance to choose. But within the context, now we're talking about a tantric process here. In relationship, in the we space, we create structures. And, you know, this is what circling is. If you look at what the circling people do, there's a structure that's created by circling where people kind of hit a stable second tier level of, of we space. And yeah. in that space, you know, there's a, there's a certain sense of liberation and a certain sense of, of love and connection and deep understanding that, you know, a lot of, those, a lot of people, you know, don't feel as regularly in other space. You know, Patricia looks for that, you know, Patricia Albert in the Evolutionary Collective. Yeah. Well, in a couple, if your standard is to be a, a loving and positive presence to your partner and theirs is to you, then you, suddenly you, you're less than your best self. Your partner suffers a little bit. You see that suffering and then adjust towards your best self. They see your suffering at them not being their best self. They make that adjustment. If that becomes the standard of the relationship, then what that becomes is a tantric practice where people are constantly giving each other feedback towards being their best self. That accelerates development. And I think that it, I, I've never seen that researched in the way that meditation is researched, but I suspect that that accelerates the evolution of consciousness. I certainly yeah. have found that to be true in my own life. Yeah, I, I would think it does too. I think, you know, the, the idea that meditation is the only thing that has been shown doesn't mean that there aren't other things that absolutely directly aid the evolution of consciousness. And I think what you're talking about, you know, just these we spaces of a good marriage, you know, just a simple, good, basic good marriage is uh, got to be a very, very potent container for people. And it, it actually bodes well for, as you said at the beginning of our talk here, uh, the future of marriage. And we see it, I think, now that the people at the higher, like college educated people have better marriages than uncollege educated people. They have less divorce and that sort of thing. And I, it's just one of those interesting things as we look at the development of culture that, of course, we always think of amber traditionalists as being the people who have the best marriages. And that's not necessarily true as the idea of marriage has changed. It was, it was probably true when, you know, men went out to work and women stayed home and everybody knew where the power was and everybody played the same game. Those marriages, yeah, I mean, they, they could be stable. And you can see in traditional societies, they marry for life and have less divorce than we have in, in Western countries. But as a culture develops, those marriages actually become less stable. And yeah. it requires more consciousness in yeah. order to have a stable marriage. So that's an interesting change in things. 
you know, along those lines, you can see how a blue culture is so much better than a red culture. Because yeah. in red culture, it's like, you know, I, I take what I want, and if I want a woman, I take her, because generally it's guys having the power to do that. Well, in a blue culture, women have actual position and rights socially. There are a larger, a larger container of the sacred text and of the, the community that we need to belong in that we have to uh, maintain a certain, um, certain roles in. And so what that creates is less violence and more collaboration. When we go into orange culture, then um, there's more of a sense of fulfillment being something that we can aspire to. Um, and if we're both aspiring to more fulfillment, then that takes us out of the limitations of blue and so on. And we can go the same with green and the teal. Interestingly, you find people in, this is one of the reasons why I've never kind of nailed myself down to, to one system of therapy. There's a group of marriage counselors or a school of marriage counselors that really focuses on the development of the individual autonomy within the relationship. You know, that David Snarch, Passionate Marriage, Crucible Approach, um, Esther Perel, who wrote uh, Mating in Captivity, they're big on that, big on individual uh, individuation. On the other hand, there's people that focus a lot on the safety of the bond, the attachment. Those are people like Susan Johnson with uh, Emotionally Focused Therapy, where the feeling safe with each other, feeling close with each other, feeling like you can trust each other to be there in crisis, for them is the most important thing. And then there's other people like John Godman who say, well, there's these, 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 these ways of being, you know, up-leveling uh, positive, down-leveling negative. If you just learn that, well, as it turns out, any particular couple at any particular crisis point could need one or a combination of those approaches. And an yep. integral understanding is, you know, let's look at, at what's needed in this particular moment and what's the combination that fits, you know, for this particular couple and these two individuals at this particular moment. It could be different ones of those at different stages of development. Like in the yep. 70s, for instance, I had a lot of women uh, who come into me and they were 28, 29, 30, 31, who had never, ever lived autonomously, hated the fact that they never lived autonomously. And some just left marriages that were relatively satisfying marriages just because they had never lived on their own as an autonomous woman and they just needed to have that experience. Yeah, um, I know women like that. Yeah. Less so now because the Xers and the millennials will have periods where they're living autonomously before they, they do pair bonding. And so you have less of that problem. But that was something that happened a lot in the 70s and early 80s. Um, you know, a lot of confused guys. What the fuck? You know, everything's yeah. going fine. I love her. She loves me. Why does she have to go off on her own? What, you, what is it? Yeah. They didn't realize that their structure of class, they, they had already felt their sense of autonomy. They didn't suffer in that particular area, so they didn't have empathic resonance for their wife having not uh, had that experience. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who was in a, a good marriage. Uh, they had two little kids. Uh, she was married when she was 20. She was pregnant, got married, you know, quickly. And six years later, she said, I didn't know why I had to get out of that marriage. There was, you know, my husband wasn't doing anything wrong, but I just felt that I was in a coffin and the lid was closing. And oh. she... You know, that's 40 years ago. She has no regrets. But it's still, you know, a little bit of a mystery as to, and I, I think what you're talking about, where she actually had no opportunity to be an autonomous, yeah. autonomous person. And that's what she became. And she has no regrets. And, and it caused a lot of trouble. But there you go. And this is 
one of the reasons I think that it's a positive change in culture that people are getting married now at 26, 27, 28, rather than, you know, 18, 19, and 20. Because Later than ever that. before in history. Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a big plus, and, and it bodes well for, you know, once you do get married, that you have a better chance of making it work for a lifetime. Well, I've noticed that this is, a, this is true for a lot of the boomers. You know, I, I lived with a woman for several years you know, before she left me. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> but, but anyway, but basically, so my relationship with Becky was essentially a second marriage. You know, a yep. lot of boomers have had an intimate relationship where they've lived with somebody, they've been committed to somebody, they've learned an awful lot about who they are and about relationship, and so they do, they, they're a little bit more able to make uh, discernments. And interestingly, second marriages tend to be both shorter and more satisfying than longer marriages. They're shorter because people get out sooner when it's not working, because they know how to get out, yep. and they're more satisfying because people are more discerning when they get into them. Yep. They've had some experience, some life experience. And, you know, the thing with, with the thing, right, this is just, I love this. You, you can't see structures of consciousness. And there's some structures that only exist when you're in the presence of another person. And some mm. states that only exist. So we love that when it's romantic infatuation. Right. You know, we're just obsessing about each other in a positive way. But then, five years later, we're just finally so fucking sick of him dropping his clothes on the floor, never fucking picking him up and ever doing the laundry, and so on, so on, so on. So, so you're around him, you see him drop a sock, and you enter a state of rage. That state of rage is, is very much like love. You're obsessed with him. You want to just kick his ass because he's dropped the sock on the floor again. There's not much empathy. You know, you're, you're really caught up in your desire to... to, to the same, it really is the same circuit, and you're not aware that that structure now has been practiced, and that structure needs to be deconstructed and changed into a new structure, or you're just going to find yourself instinctively going into a revulsion reaction when you're around your partner. And if yeah. you practice that too much, you, you turn a corner, and it's too late. You know, sometimes couples come in, and you just feel that. It's too late. Wow. Yeah, Keith, wow, man. I mean, you really... It's impressive how much you can bring to this institution of marriage, you know, and how, again, how little preparation we give people culturally for this. It's just a mistake. Yeah, we should start in kindergarten. I know. I wish everybody could have couples therapy with you, Keith. (laughs) Oh, Jeff, that's very sweet. (laughs) So anything else we want to add or talk about here as we're... No, I think think this is... You know, this is good. You know, it's, I think this is kind of what Martin uh, Ukik got with his Integral Relationship book. You know, he, has this, he had this sense of, you know, there's a lot of perspectives that we can consider. You know, he focused more on choosing people more than, than right. long-term. And that the whole integral uh, sense of, of, you know, just keep on looking from different, from different um, altitudes, from different addresses, so to speak. And if you do, you start finding a way through to love. And that's what I'm about. You know, there is a way to love. And if two people want to get there, and if they're willing to, you know, take care of themselves and change, you can find a way through to love again and again and again and again. And, you know, finding our way through to love, is that's really the bottom line. I think the evolution of consciousness, if you want to take it down to just one thing, 
evolution of consciousness is we get better and better at finding our way through to love. Right on, man. Spoken like the true deed of the school of love. <laughs> dot com. <laughs> That's a great way to close and end today, Keith. And, uh, you know, much love to you. And let's uh, keep this. Uh, we're all love generators. And we're all love uh, generators. And it's nice to know that and to have somebody to, to do that with. It just uh, uh-huh. makes life worth living. It does. It really does. <laughs> All right, Keith, you take care, and we'll uh, check in again later. Yeah, we'll talk again. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Keith.